your heart is where Christ dwells. And so if you have shut down the heart, (laughs) if you have dismissed the heart, if you spurn your heart, if you reject it, if you have buried it, if it is under a rubble of pain, disappointment, and a boatload of agreements, it's going to be very difficult. So, so step two, what's in the way? Is it a shutdown heart? Is the enemy here? What are the reasons that I'm having a hard time hearing the voice of God? You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Hello and welcome to the program. You're listening to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick. In this two-part series, I know you're going to be encouraged and hopefully a wee bit stretched by today's conversation, where in two separate episodes, I speak with John Eldridge and Craig McConnell of Ransomed Heart Ministries. John Eldridge, of course, is the best-selling author of books like Wild at Heart, Beautiful Outlaw, and Moving Mountains. Craig McConnell was a co-author with John on a number of projects, a sage, a warrior for the hearts of men, and a passionate seeker of God. Presenting this podcast is bittersweet for me. You see, this interview took place in Colorado Springs during the spring of 2010. At that time, Craig McConnell was only a year into what would become a seven-year battle with leukemia. In recent weeks, Craig's cancer returned with a vengeance, and on Monday, August 1st, he entered into the presence of God, finally seeing Jesus face-to-face for all of eternity. This news hit me hard. It hit many of us hard because losing Craig as a friend and ally has been a massive loss. Craig was a man who, even in his fight against cancer, was filled with life, as you will hear in our conversation. I didn't know Craig as well as others. He did several guest lectures in my classes at Denver Seminary, and we shared several meals together over the years. But there are two things I'll always remember about Craig. First, he was a man with profound presence. Physically, he stood at least six foot four, but his presence was more than height or stature. Instead, his presence conveyed a sense that he was fully engaged and attentive, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. The second thing I will remember about Craig is his ability to speak words of life to myself and others. The first time he spoke at Denver Seminary, I recall Craig speaking to students as they gathered around him after class, looking them right in the eye and literally offering words that would bring students to tears because they felt so known and so seen. To me, personally, Craig would speak each and every time he saw me, Michael, the Father wants you to know that you have a good heart. I'm grateful to have known Craig McConnell this side of eternity, and I'm especially happy to be able to share this conversation with you in Craig McConnell's honor. John, I heard you give a message at the National Pastors Convention, I think it was in 07, and you talked to a group of Christian leaders, and somewhere in your talk you made the statement that we know we have an enemy, but we don't live as if we do. Right. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, how many how many pastors do you know, let alone normal Christian, you know, lay people, um, that pray, hmm. pray? out loud, as Jesus did in the wilderness, directly against the enemy on a regular basis, like it's just a normal part of their life. Mm. Uh, My experience has been very few. Um, And unfortunately, when you don't take the presence of the enemy seriously, um, then you leave – you just leave him free to wreak havoc in your life and you end up having to blame someone for it. 
and and you either usually end up blaming yourself or others, um, but mostly God. We end up blaming God for that. James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Um, you're commanded to resist. But my son was in a Bible class in in, uh, in middle school, a Christian school, and the, and the teacher of the Bible class explained to him, it's not our job to resist the devil. That's mm. God's job. Well, that's unbiblical. Mm. But not only is it unbiblical, it is very, very dangerous to teach people that. There is a there is a staggering passivity that has the church right now. And, and it, I mean, it frustrates ministers, priests, um, people who are trying to bring you know their people along in, in, in life with God. It, it's very frustrating. There is this profound passivity within the church. And part of the reason why is we've told them, you don't have to resist evil. There's nothing active for you to do in that arena, you know. Um, but I'm telling you, <laughs> James 4, 7, no resist, no flee. Uh, the enemy doesn't just walk away because you choose not to believe in him. He just gets to have a field day with you. And um, we, we just have, at this point, far too many years of experience and far too many stories to tell of, of people who could not find freedom, could not hear from God, could not experience the intimacy with God, could not attain a genuine you know, holiness and improvement of character, you know, a better marriage or whatever, without learning to shut down the spiritual warfare in their life. Now, let me play, no pun intended, but devil's advocate just for a minute, because I know that there's people that are going to be listening to this message saying, oh, yeah, there's another person who's just blaming it on the devil. You're not saying that people sin because of the devil or that if you just cast out a demon that the person never has to wrestle or... uh, avoid temptation or anything like that. Well, no. You go back to Ephesians 4 where Paul's warning us. He says, actually, the way you mishandle things, anger is the example in Ephesians 4, but it's, I mean, anger is not some special sin in the Bible, right? Paul, um, it was through, it gives the devil an opportunity. In other words, issues of character, issues uh, of personal holiness and integrity, issues of family character, church character, you know, the character of an entire organization, the holiness of an organization, are deeply, deeply connected to these issues. And and uh, we, at, when Adam fell, that's how he abdicated, you know, authority to the evil one. It was mm-hmm. through sin that the enemy gained. So off, uh, the enemy gained, you know, the, the uh, lordship, small l, of the earth, um, you know, which is why First John 5, he, he says, now the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So... Um, no, we're not saying uh, that other issues like repentance um, and, and volition and a godly life are not, you know, are somehow, you know, set aside if you just learn how to deal with demons. On the other hand, Scripture is filled with admonitions for us to take the enemy seriously. For example, in First Peter 5, um, Peter says, um, be on your guard. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, again, he's writing to Christians. This is a letter written to Christians, not to pagans. He says, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that your brethren around the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. So Peter is first assuming that this is normal. It's all around the world. All your brothers undergo spiritual attack. He's assuming that it can be very, very damaging. But he's also commanding us to resist. So again, James 4, 7, 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, you are commanded to resist, to deal with this. So, you know, and, and again, this isn't new. You, you, you read some of the, 
you know, requirements of, of, for baptism and, you know, in, mm. in early mm. church practice. And, renounce the devil. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It was it was all, you know, renounce the covenants that you've given to the evil one. And and deliverance in some cases was absolutely essential for, for them before they could even be baptized, you know, mm. in, in the early church. So they took it very seriously. Michael, this came in, this um, aversion to taking the spiritual realm seriously, to taking demonic forces seriously and dealing with them. This came in with the Enlightenment. This was not something that the church really had to wrestle with in terms of is it true or false, is it you know real or, or overblown, until the Enlightenment. The Age of Reason in the West threw a blanket over the spiritual realm, and, and it, it did great damage to the gospel, which is for another podcast. But what we did is we moved to a gospel of the mind. Hmm. It's just teaching. It's just uh, scripture memorization. It's just um, intellectual content. Um, but my goodness, I mean, you you know, go, go to Africa, go to go to Colombia, right? Go to India. I mean, you, the church there is quite aware that you have to deal with demonic forces. It's not central. It's not the point. But the point is, if you don't deal with it, you'll find it very difficult to live the Christian life. You know, what was startling to me was in seminary, one of the systematic theologies that we we used was three volumes and probably 1,500 pages. And I think there were like eight pages on on the devil. Wow. And it, it's just remarkable to me. I'm, who was it, John? You've said this before. Don't let your reaction be the determinative factor in cre- in establishing your theology. Yes, yes. I was Schaefer years ago warning the church don't 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 let a reaction to mistakes. Yes. People making excesses of things, you know, some people do do goofy things with spiritual warfare. But people do goofy things with food. I mean, the people do goofy things with cars. They do goofy things with all sorts of stuff. It doesn't we don't write them off as categories. Right? We still love food. Most people still drive cars, you know. So don't let your reaction to someone else's excesses shape your theology. Hmm. Craig, you talked about the eight pages in the big uh, systematic yeah. theology book and, and recently reading through the Gospels four in a row. It's unbelievable to see the sheer amount of time Jesus spends dealing with the demonic yes. and casting out demons yes. as, as part of the healing journey. <clears throat> it's just so obvious, yes. and yet we resist that somehow. Well, again, again, because of the age of reason. I mean, it, 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 the way we think as Westerners, you know, is really written this off as a category. But, but you don't find that in in developing countries. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, but I find myself so often apologizing in my ministry sometimes to people that are not familiar with this, you know, having to say, well, this is a balanced approach. This is not really over the edge. And and that's just strange that we need to do that. Would it be fair to say that warfare uh, should be a normative part of our discipleship and walking with God? Well, first off, you have to understand that warfare is the backdop of the Bible. Um, I mean, the entire Old Testament and New is framed by an understanding that we are in a great battle of good and evil. That that's that's normative, you know. So the Exodus, for example, God goes to war to set His people free, you know, inheriting the Promised Land. They have to fight 
to inherit the promised land. David goes to war. Gideon goes to war. Samson goes to war. The judges go to war. The prophets go to war. I mean, it's this is very, very normative in Scripture, and, and it's the backdrop. Most people think it stops with the New Testament. It doesn't. It, it, it actually, as you said, Jesus is kicking out demons, dealing with the evil one quite frequently in the New Testament. And images of battle, Paul saying, you know, to Timothy, you know, don't live like a civilian, live like a soldier, have the mindset of a good as a good soldier of Christ. Well, what are you fighting <laughs> as this soldier of Christ? I, unfortunately, what we end up doing is we end up fighting each other. But but if you know Ephesians six says no 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 you don't wrestle with flesh and yeah. blood you know so it is it is it's absolutely normative and I think people there's nothing like a good healthy experience of freedom to for you to realize how helpful this can be so just take one category the enemy is trying to get you to make agreements with him all the time about your wife about your ministry about yourself about God and if you just begin to become aware of and praying and asking God to reveal to you, what are the agreements I am making with my enemy? Um, Because as you begin to break those agreements, he's a liar, father of lies, but he tries to get us to believe those, and many of them are rooted in our childhood wounds. I'm a failure. I'll never be loved. Don't ever trust anyone again, things like that. Um, As you begin to break those agreements and you begin to experience the freedom that you can have, you realize not only is this normal normative, but it is so helpful for heaven's sakes. It's not bizarre. It's not wacky. It's just immensely helpful. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little slow. The agreements are a, a place where when we agree with the lie as opposed to the truth of God and Scripture, yes, that exactly. becomes a landing pad, so to speak, for the enemy. Oh, he, he uses it like a field day. And the, these agreements, some of them are very, very deep and very historic in our lives. Um, you know, an agreement. I was trying to counsel a couple who were headed to divorce. Um, this man explained to me that uh, he had married the wrong person. They'd been married for 17 years. And uh, for most of that marriage, he was pretty checked out. And I, I was trying to discern why he came to that conclusion. I, I said, how do you know that you married the wrong person? He said, well, God told me. Really? God told you? When? On my honeymoon. He had actually heard a voice in his head on his honeymoon. He got into an awkward marriage. They didn't know each other real well. They get on the honeymoon. Things present themselves, as happens with every couple. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not unusual. He, he, you know, the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt crept in. And in that emotionally vulnerable moment, the evil one was there with a suggestion. And the suggestion went like this. You married the wrong person. Now, he made a deep agreement with that. Meaning, internally, he gave way to that idea. Yes, that's true. I buy that. I swallow that. I go with that. I make an agreement with that. It defined 17 years of marriage, and they ended up divorcing. So these things are very, very powerful, very defining in our life. John, can you give me an example, uh, like almost praying through what that would look like to break an agreement? Well, I'll tell you what would be very, very helpful to begin with is to ask God to reveal first, reveal to you the agreements that you are making with the enemy. Um, and I need to do this on a fairly regular basis. It's just kind of part of my devotional time. Um, I'm not on a witch hunt. I'm not constantly looking for this. But, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. You know, show me the agreements that I've made with the enemy. And then as an agreement presents itself, uh, you know, God will either remind me of something that I – what do you say to yourself every time you blow it? You know, there are things that you say to yourself, or what do you say to yourself when, when your spouse disappoints you? There are things internally that you're making agreements with. Now, in my marriage, one of the recognitions I came to was, um, it's too much work. Hmm. 
That was a deep agreement yeah. for me and my marriage. It's just too much work. I'm not checked out. I'm not having an affair. But I'm just not – I'm not giving it 100 percent either. I'm kind of playing it safe. And, and so what it looks like is, Heavenly Father, forgive me for giving place to this in my life. I reject this lie. I reject this agreement. And it really is helpful to do it out loud. I break agreement with my marriage is too much work or I married the wrong mm-hmm. person or mm-hmm. I will never be loved or, you know, deep agreements. My father was an alcoholic and, and I was abandoned around the age of 13. And, and I made a very deep agreement Having been deeply wounded by my father, I made an agreement that went like this. I am on my own. I'm on my own in the world. It's absolutely defined my life for 40 years. And, and coming to the place where I had to say that is not true. Jesus said he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I'm not alone. I never have been alone. But I had to break with it. This is where God honors uh, our will. He honors our, our our ability to make choices and 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 to choose you know truth over over lie and good over evil and so I break agreement with I'm on my own I reject it renounce it and then Ephesians four and I reject every stronghold every foothold that I've given the enemy in my life because of this in the name of Jesus Christ you know now if it's a quick passing agreement you know that hits you in the grocery store, you can usually shut it down with one prayer. If it's a deep historic thing, you may have to pray through this a couple times. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting a quick kind of, you know, and it's all over. But um, but if you stay with that and you recognize these agreements, it's just amazing that the fog that you live under that you don't have to. You just, you would be astounded. Mm. And here's another one. Um, God doesn't speak to me. Well, if you make an agreement that God doesn't speak to you, guess what your experience is going to be? Not going to hear God. Exactly. God doesn't speak to me. You know, so you've got to be really, really careful. You know, not to give place to these things in your heart and in your life. And again, they're usually connected to to wounds, disappointments. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was actually going to ask you about that in the spiritual direction and soul care that I do. I, I, I encounter so many people that they don't hear God, mm-hmm. they don't believe that God speaks, mm-hmm. specifically that God doesn't speak to them. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to that, and how do you walk with people on that journey? Well, let's start with John chapter 10. Four times in John chapter 10 alone, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They follow me. Um, my sheep hear my voice. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Uh, they too will hear my voice and follow me. And then take Revelation uh, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice. Again, that's a letter written to the church, by the way. It's written to Christians. It's, we use it in evangelism, and I think that's fine. But it's actually a letter written to Christians. And he says, I, ha- I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and be intimate with him, sup with him and he with me. Okay, so you have to start with it's biblical, it's normal, <laughs> it's available. Because if you're not convinced of that, you're going to have a hard time getting past this. Um, it, it is uncommon, however, to meet people who don't experience hearing the voice of God. So while it's scripturally normative, it's not normal mm. in the Christian life, sadly, to say. And it wasn't for me. Nobody told me that this was available. I went, I, I came to Christ through a pretty stunning conversion at age 19, and I went to a great Bible teaching church, and they taught me to love the scriptures and how to study, and, and I'm very, very grateful for that. But nobody taught me this, that God speaks intimately and speaks personally. Um, but as you begin to unpack the scriptures and you realize, oh, my goodness, all these stories of God speaking to his people, you know, um, he doesn't give you those stories and then tell you, but you can't have that, hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, you, you want to begin 
by recognizing it's biblical, it's appropriate, it's available. And then step two is, so what's in the way? What's in the way? Um, because it, it varies uh, on what's in the way. Your heart, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, your heart is where Christ dwells. The Father would strengthen us through his spirit and in our inmost being that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Your heart is now where Christ dwells. And so if you have shut down the heart, <laughs> if you have dismissed the heart, uh, if, if you spurn your heart, if you reject it, if you have buried it, if it is under a rubble of pain, disappointment, and a boatload of agreements, it, it's going to be very difficult. So, so step two, what's in the way? Is it a shutdown heart? Is the enemy here? You know, what are the, what are the reasons that I'm having a hard time hearing the voice of God? Um, and, and, then, and then just beginning to pray, you know, Lord, open my ears. Open my ears to hear your voice. Let me recognize the many ways mm-hmm. that you're speaking to me every nice. day, which is through Scripture, uh, you know, uh, through the counsel of others, and, and then uh, through your still quiet voice within us. Mm-hmm through creation, everything. You know, a lot of what lies behind this, Michael, is your image of God. I mean, is, is do we view God as a good father who wants to make himself known, who wants to mm. speak mm. and be engaged? Mm. Um, you know, Scripture convinces us that God's, God knows us intimately, but we're unconvinced he wants to know yeah, we, that we can know him intimately. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is the image of God behind a view that doesn't hold that he speaks, that he makes himself known, that he wants to be a part of our every moment and every day in some personal, real, unique, and intimate way? I mean, so it's it's not a good picture of God, not, in my mind, not a biblical picture of God, that he's silent. And you're making a distinction, I think, between what we believe cognitively and yes. that truth of the inmost being. Yeah, that yeah. which lies deep beneath oh. all our religious oh. confessions and creeds. That's Tozier. Yeah. Yeah. Tozier, right, that he says what you actually believe about God is buried beneath your creedal statements and often takes a good deal of unearthing to discover, mm-hmm. right? Um, but But what you believe about God, this is a good place to test that. Does he want to speak to you? Because, again, if you just start there with, why would God want to speak to me? You're going to have a difficult time hearing from him, mm. you know. But if you're adored, if you're loved, if you're a son, a daughter, Jesus calls you his friend. Mm. If you are a friend of God, then, of course, he'd want to speak to you. Mm. So segueing into the fourth stream of healing, that's getting down into that inmost place where Jesus yes. comes. Can you talk about the stream of healing, either one of you? I like to think of it as sanctifying the past. Uh, I, I think everyone can relate to the desire to have Jesus be present with us. Lord, come into all I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Fill my – if I'm a student, fill my studies. You know, if I'm married, fill my marriage. I mean, mm-hmm. we want Jesus to be a part of our lives now. Well, a lot of us have places in our past where Jesus was not invited in or was mm-hmm. not part of the story. Or you know, So I like to think of it as sanctifying the past, that there are memories – there are wounds, there are experiences, there are things that were said to us, things that were done, um, things that we did uh, that, um, that very much need now the presence of Christ in them to cleanse, to heal, to restore, to sanctify, to make whole. Um, for example, um, sexuality. Um, you know, human sexuality is, is an absolutely beautiful and deeply mysterious part of our soul. But as you know, Michael, if someone's wounded in their sexuality through sexual sin, uh, trauma, experience, abuse, 
um, they're they're wounded about as deeply as a person can get wounded because it's so close to who we are as men and women. Well, that requires the healing presence of Jesus mm-hmm. to come back into those. So you take early sexual experiences, for example. Um, confession and repentance are a part of that and a deep part of that. Forgive me. I renounce that. I renounce my part in that. But it's not enough. It's not mm-hmm. sufficient. This is that... You know, Jesus knocking at the door, will you let me into this place in your life? And and what we have found is that Christ is very eager to come back into memories, experiences, um, childhood wounds, you know, uh, and, and to heal the damage that was done to the soul there and also to free the soul from the opportunities that that gave to the evil one because, you know, if Again, using sexuality as an example, if you have early experiences as a young man with pornography, you know that 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 awakens things in your soul that touches things down there so deeply mm. that that um, the enemy just has a field day with that, yeah. and it gets a stronghold in there, and then you find yourself at you know forty nine wrestling with lust or affairs or homosexuality or whatever it may be, um, in in. To invite Christ back into the roots of these things, not you know, I'm I'm doing my best to try and live a holy life now. That's important, and to make choices now, God honors those choices. But at the same time, I need to invite Christ back with me into my past. Lord Jesus, come into that first sexual experience, come into that early introduction of pornography, come into that. Cleanse my soul there, make me holy there. Come into these memories and. Um, you know, there's obviously a great deal more that needs to be described in this, but what we are simply describing is inviting the presence of Jesus into those memories, those events, those wounds, and, and then following his lead there. Sometimes it requires breaking of deep agreements, right? I am a lustful person. Well, if you make an agreement that you're a lustful person, you, you're probably yeah. going to find yourself struggling with lust for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, and again, that's tied to the good heart, bad heart thing. Right? Right. If you think your heart, if you think your heart's bad, um, I was just in uh, um, Santa Barbara, California, uh, this last weekend, and it, it's a very, very sexual city, um, largely because of UC, you know, University of California there. Um, you know, gorgeous women, scantily clad, everywhere. And, and the spirit of seduction just swirls around the place. There's just a there's a sexual enticement and excitement and licentiousness and sin that kind of thing. Okay, well, I mean, I, the whole weekend I am just navigating. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want. I'm getting hit with the temptation. But if you think your heart is evil, if you think you actually do want that, you're toast. Yeah. You're history. You know, but just to recognize, no, 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 I, I don't desire. You know, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Mm. Paul says, I don't want that. The, the freedom that that brings mm. to go, no, no, mm-hmm. I, no, I want God. I want a genuine holiness. I, um, but that, for me, that only is because I've gone back through my sexual history and both renounced sins, but also invited the healing ministry mm-hmm. of Christ, mm-hmm. you know, and breaking uh, agreements with um, sexual brokenness and all of that, you know, that that deep, deep stream of inner healing is extraordinarily important for individuals to be able to live the life they want to live with God now. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned holiness, and I want to end on this note. You have a, 
a teaching that is strangely named the utter relief of holiness. Talk about holiness and um, what the Bible has to say about that versus what we often think holiness is. Oh, where do you begin? (laughs) Part two. Yeah. (laughs) First off, that holiness is a matter of the heart in Scripture. Clearly it is. um, Jesus says you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're a disaster. Um, That um, motives, um, issues of idolatry, right? I'm setting up other gods in your heart, you know, all of that. Their words are like butter, but their hearts are drawn swords. You know, with their mouths they bless, but with their hearts they curse. So it's a matter of the heart. Holiness is a matter of the heart. And and the beauty, the absolute and phenomenal promise of the, of the Scriptures is that you get the holiness of Jesus, not just positionally. Yeah. And, and and this is where, I mean, Craig, wouldn't you say that most teaching is positional? Yeah, legal, um, yeah. In the heavens. Our position, yeah. future realization. Yeah. Yes, right. Your it's name, not substantive. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that the holiness of Christ is imparted to you so that when you get to the gates in heaven, you know, though your sins, you know, record, you know, is real, it's blotted out by the merit of Jesus Christ. So, And that's true, by yes. the way. That's all true, and yes. that's all really, really good news. But there's more. Why would God, why would God um, forgive you and then leave you in the same condition that required Jesus to be sent to the cross hmm. and leave you in the same condition to repeat for the rest of your life? those sins that drove you to your knees in repentance uh, the first time, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's cruelty beyond imagination to, to pardon someone uh, and, and then commit them to repeating for the rest of their life uh, the very sins uh, for which Christ had to atone and for which now they grieve and, and, and lament deeply, right? Yeah, with ever building guilt, shame, and self-love. No, resignation and finally just checking out. Yeah. The, the utter relief of holiness is that a genuine internal holiness is available to us so that you you can not only desire to live the kind of life that Jesus lived, you can actually live like him. You can have, we are, Second uh, Corinthians 3.18, right? But we all, with unveiled faces, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. That's what the gospel is supposed to do to an individual. Again, you'll know them by their fruits. You know, the gospel is supposed to transform people into the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory. And and the way that that comes to us is is through the impartation of the life of Christ in us, he literally becomes our life, so that the holiness is authentic. It's not um, legalistic, so that it is internal and not merely, you know, functional and external. So that it touches realms of motive, uh, and, and realms of desire, and realms of worship, and all of that. Realms of idolatry, so that there is mm-hmm. a there is a genuine transformation of the personality. Of the individual, mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. their habits, mm-hmm. their personality mm-hmm. is is transformed, and, and and yes, it's an utter relief. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. right? Not to struggle with hatred anymore, mm-hmm. not to hate people, not to struggle with jealousy or bitter envy or all those things that are listed in Scripture as the as the fruits of the flesh. My goodness, what a relief that is. Holiness is is a word that is just unfortunately carries so many things with it but in 
a fact what holiness is, is the life we've always wanted to live. And it's available. Yes, exactly. Again, in Romans 6, Paul says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Imagine that. Holy cow. Sin shall not be master over you, Hmm. right? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. I'm not consigned to repeat these things over and over again. Hallelujah. Hmm. If people knew, right, if this was the gospel that was taught and explained, and offered, I mean, we'd be a whole lot farther down the road on evangelizing hmm. uh, than, than we are right now. Amen. Amen. Craig, if you had an opportunity to speak to pastors and Christian leaders with your background of losing heart and then finding your heart again through a deep understanding of the gospel, what would you want to say to them? Oh, I'd want to say more important than your service, your sacrifice, your labor. Um, to God is is your heart, and that the longing mm. of God is mm. for you, you to know Him and enjoy Him, and and to find a life in Him that you may have once had or that you read of in Scripture and yearn for. It's available. I mean, more important than anything you accomplish or do is just an intimate relationship with Christ. It's available, and out of that flows everything you'd love to do. Mm. Craig McConnell and John Eldridge, thank you very much for your time today and your wisdom and heart. Bless you. Great to be with you, Michael. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. 